Voices of Experience, coming up next. Good afternoon and welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. And uh, what is Voices of Experience all about? Well, I'll try to tell you, at least from my point of view. I just like to talk to people with experience in their fields. For example, if you're a pilot on an airline's I would be much more inclined to want to hear your opinion on how to fly a jet if you've been doing it for 30 years, as opposed to someone who's just taken their maiden flight. And today, we have a couple of people who really have a tremendous amount of experience in their field. First up will be Rick Stanton, and he has a company by the name of Stanton and Everybody. It's a marketing and branding firm, and he has a lot of experience in his arena. He has uh, so many clients that have been with him for like 20 plus years, and that's a real indication of the type of work that he does. So he'll talk about what it takes to run a successful marketing and branding campaign. Deanna Oppenheimer, who has served on a number of corporate boards, well, she recently started a company by the name of Board Ready, and this is an effort to recruit more women to serve on corporate boards. So, true to my word, we have two very experienced people to talk to today on Voices of Experience. Rick Stanton will be up in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. We now have Rick Stanton on the phone, so he's had to put him through all this going, what did I get myself into? Maybe you already had his right little you know, bubble wrap moment this morning. You never know. That's right. Rick, did you know? A dial tone with my voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you know today is National Bubble Wrap Day? I'll bet I you had didn't no know idea. That. Yes. Yes, I it feel is. better informed for knowing that, though. Impress your friends. That's right. You can walk, whatever you do today, you can go to the coffee shop in Bainbridge Island and say, did you know this? And people are going to be impressed. I'm telling you. Well, I, I need content these days, so that would be that would be something I could hang my hat on for at least 24 hours. It's great A content. Great A. You're getting so, it from the best. Courtesy of Voices of Experience, you have that information now. So, Rick, uh, great uh, for you to join us this morning. And I wanted to ask you, uh, well, several questions, of course. And the thing, uh, one of the things I was most intrigued by is when you started your business, you really didn't have a lot of money. I think I read in a bio there was like $1,400 to step out and go into become a freelance designer and art director. Now, that must be terrifying at the time. But I want to ask a question about do you actually think maybe having those little resources in the beginning was actually a blessing? Well, I, you know, I think when you're facing, you know, the reality of having to make rent payments and car payments and then also this thing called food, that it, there's a great motivator to get up early and work late. And um, that was certainly the case when I started. Um, I was, um, 
<laughs> the perfect pathway to a 40-year career in, in advertising was I started out as a school teacher, and I taught uh, I taught high school art at Kelso High School and coached baseball. And um, after three years, I did the math, and I figured out between the coaching and the teaching and the you know chaperoning and all the other things you do as a teacher, that I made about a dollar nine an hour. And I thought, you know, as as great as it is to be a teacher and help kids and stuff, it'd be nice to be able to have a car that ran. So I moved back to Seattle and um, met a buddy of mine that I'd known for a few years, and he basically talked me into going out on my own. And I was, you know, I was 27 years old or so and, and you know, had nothing to lose. So I just said, what the hell, let's see if we can make this work. And it, it did. And so when you started that, and it seems to me you went and then partnered with other agencies and did other works, and, and, and like, say, Bob Walsh, the name came up. Uh, I saw that, and Dennis Burns. I don't know who Dennis is, but I certainly knew uh, of Bob Walsh. What are the pros and cons? Because you circled back and then went back into your own business by yourself with Stanton and everybody. So it kind of you came full circle. What are the pros of, let's say, being with someone else, partnering, and what are the cons? Well, I think the pros, you know, it, I think one of the most important things to come to grips with uh, if you do want to run your own company is to identify those things that you don't do well and find someone to bring along that does those things so that you have a more complete approach to what it is you're doing. Dennis Burns, uh, that you mentioned, is, is still today one of the most disciplined designers that I ever worked with. Um, he showed me some uh, a skill set that I had really lacked, and uh, he filled in the gaps and, and really made us a, a much better team together. And then along the way, uh, Dave Bondo was uh, another partner of ours. Uh, Dennis left the firm uh, in the mid-'80s. And Dave Bondo uh, is a great salesman. Uh, he was a great representative for, for the company. It was Stanton Bondo and Company at the time. And uh, we, we were the biggest independent advertising agency in Seattle uh, in the late-'80s. And, uh, you know, David was one of those guys. He was a rock turner. He, he could go out and he could find the kind of business we wanted to work on and, you know, get us a meeting and continue to push and uh, just a really good salesman. And so that was something that I wasn't as comfortable with and David was great at. So those are the attributes. Um, if there's a con to it, um, it's sometimes in the process of the relationship, uh, the dynamics change, and you end up with, you know, someone that you're working with that has decided they're going to abandon the skill set that made the partnership work. And that's when you end up having issues. That's when you end up bumping heads. And, and you know, it's it, it's just like being married or not being married. You know, you're going to have problems either way. It's just different problems. It seemed to me that from one of the things that came through and reading about you is that you like doing the work. You didn't also really get into managing a lot of people. Yeah, when, when Stanton Bondo was at its apex, we had about 30 employees, and we were billing, you know, $25, $30 million. And, um, you know, I was sitting in the corner office worrying about stuff like payroll and health care plans, and that's really not why I got into the business and why I sustained it uh, in the business. Is I really I like getting people excited about ideas. 
and about their brand and and to motivate them to understand their brand and you know to try to bring that to the forefront and so when I started Stanton and everybody um, I just decided that you know I was going to keep it small I saw that there was a, a definite return to smaller more boutique size ad agencies with principal involvement and that's the way I kept it for 25 years and it was you know we fluctuated in sizes from you know, six to seven or eight to 15, but never more than that. And that way I was able to keep my hands on the the uh, controls when it came to the creative. Certainly. It's uh, kind of like building your own house or something like that. There's a great satisfaction with doing that and being kind of the person in charge, but you're out there doing it as well. And I can certainly understand that and appreciate that because I kind of took the same path myself. You're also uh, most proud of your radio commercials you wrote and produced. And that's kind of my line, what I've done for many years. Why is that? What was it about radio that really, if I have that correct, that you enjoyed the most? Yeah, it really, it really was the discipline that I enjoyed the most. It's a storyteller's medium. Uh, it's the one thing in the advertising world where a writer can't hide behind an art director. Either you're a good storyteller or you're not. And I, I think one of the things that, that I've noticed in the last five to ten years is that there seems to be a lack of that understanding in, in the discipline. Um, radio used to be, you know, I mean, people always refer to it as theater of the mind, and, and when it's done well, that's exactly what it is. But um, I, don't, I don't see a lot of that or hear a lot of that these days. It seems to me it's becoming a lost art. So in terms of what then makes a really good radio ad, I guess the bottom line is you're working for a client and it moves the needle, it moves sales. It's very simple that way. Having said that, what do you think, you say telling a story, so important. What else in a radio commercial? Because what I find very fascinating is that you have 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and now 60 seconds just radio ads seem to be something of the past. They're too long. They're 30, 15s, or 10s. Uh, so how in that short length of time, what makes for a great ad? Well, I think in general, great advertising is something that engages people on an emotional level. You know, there has to be something more to it than Hydrox cookies for 89 cents a package. Um, there has to be, there has to be some content in there that engages somebody on, on a, on a personal emotional level so that they have a reason to care about the ad. And I always told, you know, I mean, I don't think it's any different today than it really has been in the past, but, you know, the cost of a 30-second ad versus a a 60-second ad is not that much different. And so we were always big advocates of the 60-second format because it allowed you to do more storytelling. You know, I had the Washington State Prior Commission for nearly 20 years. And, you know, we basically said the same thing in every ad we ever did, which is buy grown-up Washington chicken. But we had Pat Cashman as the voice talent, and we did these goofy things, these uh, scripts that were just completely off the wall. People loved them. Uh, I was standing in line in a grocery store one day, and the woman in front of me was was humming the theme song that we had in the in the uh, prior commission spots, and that's when you know you've got them. I mean, when when there's that kind of kind of almost um, I don't know how to quite describe it, but it, it's so it's so. Um, attached to somebody's thinking that, you know, they're literally humming the, the theme music in the grocery store. And that's pretty telling. And so I think that, you know, to be able to engage someone on an emotional level so that they feel like there's some value in listening to your spot is really the key. 
You know, one of the things that when I would meet with clients about doing radio ads or any type of um, advertising campaign, it, it's interesting. Let's try this out. Let's see if it works. Let's see if radio works. Well, radio works, okay? There's like 10,000 radio stations in the country, commercial stations. So they're all supported except for NPR, just 100% by advertising. So they do work. So it will work for you if you do it properly. We just can't put something on the air for two weeks. And if you don't get this avalanche of response, it's managing expectations, I guess. If you don't get this, you know, this great response, that you've got to stick with it. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. When I, we used to have the Safeway Northwest account. And I was driving in the car one day with Del Denker, who was their marketing director, and he asked me what at the time seemed like a really obtuse question. He says, how many radio spots do you need to run in order for it to work? And I thought about it, and I thought, God, you know, that's really a pretty dumb question at one point. And the more I thought about it, I said, well, you know, it depends on what you have for sale. You know, it, it, back to the Hydrox cookies, if you're Safeway and you want to sell the devil out of Hydrox cookies over the weekend, you probably need five stations with a pretty deep schedule Wednesday through Sunday. But if you're going to give away the lottery numbers at noon, you need one spot. True. That's very you know, true. So it just That's depends on what it is you've got to sell. And, right. you know, there are varying degrees in that storytelling aspect of it that you wrap around the, the, the selling point. But, you know, it, again, I think it just depends on what it is you've got to sell and managing those expectations that you're exactly right. Yeah, it's like, for example, I think along those lines, I would say to somebody, if you could run one ad, if you say, hey, I've got $10,000 I want to give away, just give, this, give me a call, that will filter out and you'll get a lot of calls. You bet. So what is the good news and bad news today about creative agencies, the PR marketing? I mean, it's consolidated and all that. What jumps out with you is the way it was. Let's say you start out, I always don't want to be doom and gloom. Are there good things that have emerged? And what are the real challenges, the way we are running things today or the way the advertising agency business is running? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's not a great deal unlike what radio used to be around here. There was a time when there were 40-plus signals in the market, and there were probably 30 local or regional owners. And now there's like three great big giant corporations that own everything, and the only thing that matters is making money. So, you know, it, the soul has kind of gotten sucked out of it a little bit, I think, and, and I think that's happened with the advertising business as well. You know, they're owned by great big giant corporations. Um, you know, publicists, for example, you know, they're, they're parent companies in France. And so you've got all these bean counters that, you know, they, they don't really care about the quality of the creative as much as they do about making money. And, you know, I'm all for making money. But I'm also for having the enjoyment of having a business that you're involved in that has a soul. And I think that when the only thing that matters is making money, then the other stuff becomes, you know, very meaningless in the scheme of things. Um, you know, I, I think that the other thing that I've noticed, especially towards the end of my career, is that there used to be kind of a camaraderie between the broadcast entities and the advertising agencies. They were mutually beneficial of one another. And now, again, with that push to make more money, find more re- revenue streams, there's almost been yeah, become an adversarial relationship between media and the advertising agency business where they're competing now instead of you know, supporting one another and being advocates. So I, I think that the whole make money at whatever cost has kind of taken the joy out of it. 
That's very interesting. I just thought of a parallel while you were talking that way. That's kind of the way politics has gone, you know, in these yeah. last 20 years or so. They used to work together at least to reach some sort of consensus, but that's certainly gone now too. And I wonder if there's any application or any similarities to that as to what happens. One question on that though, when this consolidation happens, and I talk to people about this and it's my theory, but I would like to get your thoughts on it. I suggest that yes, it has become so big and removed that that's a cost to be paid for that. And this will provide and does today and in the future provides opportunities for boutique agencies, smaller agencies to step forth. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, I'd like to think that that would be the case. Um, you know, the, the, the whole thing, though, you know, I, I was having uh, dinner the other day with an ex-partner of mine, John Ness, who's now Green Rubino. And, you know, we were talking about how much fun it used to be. And towards the end of my career, you know, I, I retired in uh, 2015, um, the, the last five years weren't a lot of fun. You know, it was just hang on. And it, it seemed to me that the clients didn't seem, at least in this market, the clients didn't seem to value the work as much as they used to. You know, to an earlier comment you made, you know, they, they want instant gratification. The idea that you run a bunch of banner ads and, and a bunch of digital media and, you know, five minutes later you see the gratification of the needle move, that doesn't work. It's not how it works. You know, the, the digital aspect of this is just another tool in the toolbox, and you still have to have a brand and you have to define that brand. And that's what connects people to brands. And so I think that, you know, it, until people start valuing the work again and the quality of their creative. Um, I don't know that the the boutique aspect, at least from a creative standpoint, is really going to matter more than how fast can I get it, how cheap can I get it, and how quick will it work. Very interesting points. Okay, maybe I'm just trying to put a sunny face on it to be optimistic about that, to say these openings will occur, but certainly there's uh, red flags all around, and I think you raised some good points there. Longevity. I, that's one thing that I read that you're most proud of. And I talk to people about running a business and that's an absolute key to measuring your success. It's not, well, of course we all want to make money because you pointed out in the beginning, you want to eat and there's certain things you have to take care of. However, when you reach a successful point, I have two. One is that, uh, you can turn down clients. You can say, you know, really, I don't want to work with you. And number two, but more important is when you have clients that stick with you for a number of years. And it seems to me that you were very good at doing that, that you had clients that stick with you. How did you make that work and, and, and all those balls in the air that you were trying to uh, manage at the same time? Well, it, it sounds a bit cliched, but I always preach that, you know, we need to make each client feel like they're the only client we have. And the really good ones will appreciate that. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, over the course of that career, the career that I had, that we did a really good job of keeping clients out of the agency that would suck the life out of you. I mean, it's one thing to come. It's hard work. You know, it's hard work. It's a lot of digging. It's a lot of learning and a lot of understanding before you get to the point where you start making advertising. And it's made even more difficult if the person that you're working for is abusive or you know, whatever other things you can say about somebody. So I tried really, really hard to make sure that I brought business into the shop that was going to be fun to work on, people are going to be fun to work with, 
I always told clients in new business pitches that the last part of it, that the one thing that you have to understand is you've now got it down to three or five agencies, and they all can do great work. But you have to ask yourself, when you see their car pull into your parking lot, are you going to be glad to see them? And that, that's one of those things that you know, really goes undetected a lot of times in agency reviews is, am I going to like working with these guys? Right, exactly. I think that's such a very good point. Uh, Rick, I said I would do a 10, 12-minute interview with you. I've taken 20 minutes of your time. I appreciate it. Anything else before we go? No, Paul. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. All right, Rick. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. You bet. Take care. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Oppenheimer has joined us and she has started a new company by the name of Board Ready. And the major objective of Board Ready is to increase the presence of women on corporate boards. Now, Deanna has a rich history of serving on corporate boards herself, and she also has served as a retail banker with Barclays of England and also president of consumer banking for Washington Mutual. She has a number of experiences with small businesses throughout her career. I asked her, what advice would she give to someone? going into business for themselves? The first thing I think that with all small businesses, in my experience, and I have to say, since I left um, executive career for big businesses over the last six years, I have Cameo Works, which is an advisory business where I work with CEOs of early stage companies. And so I've learned probably as much from them as they've learned from me. And what I am really struck with is that you can have the best idea in the world, but when you are starting from absolute scratch, it is as much or maybe even more how the funding works for that business. At what point do you go out and raise money? When do you raise it? From whom do you raise it? How much dilution do you take down in that whole side of it? And having come from public companies, where there's always, you know, public stock available to fund that company, it was a real learning curve. So that would be one thing that I would say is really understanding financially how you're going to keep a sustainable flow of capital coming into that business and um, setting that up. I think the second thing that I'm seeing, because I, again, work with a lot of technology companies, is they get the technology down, but it really is at the end of the day, what consumer is going to use this technology and how are they going to use it and how are you going to get that into their hands? Um, and that could be true for any product or service as well. So it's a really know your market and um, how do you reach out to that market. 
And I understand from our conversation, which was great, is that you have a number of quizzes and different books and things that you've written to help people through that checklist. And I think that's really important because a lot of people come into this with, wow, I've got a great idea. But it's probably the great idea is wonderful, but the hard work is everything else that maybe you didn't think about along the way. Well, one thing I quote in the book is Thomas Edison when he said that really 1% is the idea, 99% is the execution. Absolutely, and I think that's really true. I think the other one of my favorite Thomas Edison quotes, somebody asked him once when he finally, he finally figured out how to get light after 1,000 failures. He said, well, it was just 1,000 dress rehearsals that I was going through to really figure out how I got that one final thing. My thanks to Deanna Oppenheimer of Cameo Works and Board Ready for spending time with us today. And you can visit CameoWorks.com to find out more about Deanna's companies. That's CameoWorks.com. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Rick Stanton and Deanna Oppenheimer for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Voices of Experience will return next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m. And if you missed any part of the interviews with um, Rick or Deanna today, you can hear it tomorrow morning at 8.30 a.m. My name is Paul Casey. If you would like to give me a call at any time, my phone number is 206-459-5536. 206-459-5536. All right, you got me. Before I go, I will come clean. At the beginning of the show, Benny and I were talking about National Bubble Wrap Day, and Rick Stanton came on and did the same. And uh, I know many people out there were going, hey, wait a minute, January 29th is National Bubble Wrap Day. Well, if that's you, you're right. That you just heard today, my interview with Rick Stanton, was pre-recorded from January 29th. So with that, I will share some great news It's only 221 days to the next National Bubble Wrap Day. Have a great rest of the week.